Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And thank you to Dublin, who were a wonderful audience on Sunday in our second show of the Hilo Experience Live. Uh, we had a packet of potatoes thrown at us, like Nick has thrown at Mick Jagger on stage. And you were all so wonderful when we had a semi-disaster of a fire alarm going off in the second half and the whole concert hall had to be evacuated into the car park for 20 minutes on a freezing cold Sunday night. Thank you so much that so many people came back. And thank you to our Irish friends, Roisin Ingle and uh, Simon George, who have introduced us to Tato Bistro crisps, which are... I would say up there with the co-op salt and vinegar. I think they taste identical. Is that controversial? No, I think I think that Charlie, have you had one yet? Not yet, no. We've opened them for Charlie, like they're probably <laughs> we're at not a pub the garden table. User friendly thing to eat whilst. No, I would think not. Last week at Pandora, we were literally about to start recording, and I picked up an apple. <laughs> And she said, what on earth do you think you're doing? Literally right before we said, right, should we start? The mics are on. <laughs> but they are very, very good salt and vinegar crisps for our Irish listeners. Tato Bistro. wonder what the price difference is. Interesting. Uh, this show could very easily become a sort of crisps watchdog, I think. Compare the market. <laughs> I would like to alert you to my tweet of the week, Pandora, which comes from Elaine Hendricks, who you might remember as playing Meredith Blake in the 96 remake of The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. Might remember being the operative word. Do you not remember her? She played the glamorous uh, girlfriend of Dennis Quaid. I'd probably recognise her. So she um, she's 26. She plays a 26-year-old soon-to-be stepmother. Oh, I do remember yeah. her. And the reason I know that number is because I wrote about it in my chapter, <laughs> extra chapter in my paperback about turning 30, because when I was having a crisis about turning 30, Meredith Blake being 26 was something that very much haunted me. So she tweeted today uh, in response to the announcement that Dennis Quaid, who's 65, is engaged to Laura Savoy, who's 26. Yeah, I saw that. She tweeted... Watch out for those twins and then the twin emoji. And then what I love even more, not only is she still hanging on to the fact of how this was her kind of big golden role, her Twitter avatar, the woman's nearly 50, is a still of her playing Meredith Blake. (laughs) (laughs) I just love. I think that should be a segment tweet of the week. Yeah, I quite like that. Should we start it? And Doll's Polls. Oh, yes. Thank you to the listener who suggested Doll's Polls for our... Much better than press release poll corner. (laughs) Speaking of, it's National Nut Day today. Is it? What's your favourite nut? Very good question. Um, 
Probably an almond or a cashew. Mine's a roasted peanut. Oh, very you nut. Or a cashew. The decadent nuts. Cashews are are very decadent. Someone tweeted the other day, and I think it's a good point. He said, when do you know that you're not worrying about money every day? For me, it's when I get some cashew nuts in my weekly shop and I don't feel guilty about it. And I actually think that's quite a good indicator. Nuts are very expensive. Cashew nuts are insanely expensive. The buttery nut. Oh, God, they're good, though. Big week this week. The Brexit vote has been postponed. Up to a million people attended the People's March in central London on Saturday. An Extinction Rebellion staged a divisive protest at Canning Town Tube Station during rush hour last Thursday. Amongst the criticisms of the protest, which soon turned physical, were that this was targeting one of London's poorest boroughs rather than the system, quote-unquote, i.e. massive corporations and government that Extinction Rebellion were hardly going to increase support when people who were paid by the hour were made late by the increasingly violent protest and would thus lose out on money, and that in stopping people getting on the tube, they were forcing those, ironically, that did have cars to leave and then use their cars to get into work, which is infinitely less climate-friendly than taking public transport. When asked about this, Extinction Rebellion said it was not so much about the medium in which they targeted, or the people per se, but they wanted to disrupt daily life. However, senior figures at Extinction Rebellion have now admitted that they played last week's protest wrong. Sarah Lunnan, a member of uh, Extinction Rebellion's political circle, said, Obviously, we did not get that right. People have given up their jobs to join Extinction Rebellion. For them to be so upset and so dismayed by the action is an absolute pointer to us that we have to look again at how we make those decisions. I respect what Extinction Rebellion are trying to do, but you won't garner mass support with protests like that. No, and that in particular felt... uh, Missed the mark. misjudged, yeah. It will just alienate and infuriate, and it will prove counterproductive because... There were, I was listening to, uh, I can't remember which radio show, but, you know, they were speaking to people live from the tube station or had just left the tube station. And some of them were saying, I really supported what Extinction Rebellion were doing before, but I'm really furious now. Yeah. I'm, I'm two hours late for work. I'd also add that Extinction Rebellion is meant to be about peaceful protest. And if you look at the video footage, it's anything but peaceful. It's carnage. Mm. I'd have been terrified if I was mm. there. And in brilliant news for progress, abortion and same-sex marriage has been decriminalised in Northern Ireland as of today. The politics of this is quite complicated. It wasn't passed by uh, Stormont because they are still currently unformed. Uh, The DUP and Sinn Féin cannot reach an agreement on how to form a power-sharing government. So it's not so much that Westminster have forced this through. You may remember there was a lot of conversation about how Theresa May was seen to be not pushing this um, on the agenda because she relied on the uh, support of the DUP for her majority. It's not so much that they pushed it through, it's that uh, Westminster said, if you haven't reformed by the 21st of October 2019, then this will go through. There was an attempt yesterday to recall the Northern Irish Assembly and block the laws, but it collapsed because of walkouts. The abortion law comes into effect in March and the marriage equality from February. And I'm so thrilled for everyone that's been fighting so much for this. From momentous news to much less momentous news, have you seen the trailer for the new series of The Crown? I have not. Uh, It's full of gems, the trailer. I'm very excited about Prince Charles because the actor playing Prince Charles seems to have done a very convincing Prince Charles voice, which I think is very hard. Whenever I've seen people playing Prince Charles before, that kind of 
uniquely clipped RP that the royal family have can sometimes sound a little bit South African. <laughs> There's not a trace of South African in his impression. And I loved seeing Helena Bonham Carter with her tiara on in the bath as Princess Margaret. A selection of very cute hats on the back of Olivia Coleman's head. And Emerald Fennell, who is playing Camilla Parker Bowles, looking seductively from a bubble bath at Prince Charles. So I think it's going to be absolutely riotous. I can't wait to watch it. You're excited, to say the least. Very excited. That's the real golden age, I think, of 20th century royals, the the series they're about to go into. Speaking of royals, I watched Meghan and Harry's African tour documentary. Oh yeah, what was that like? On ITV yesterday. You've probably seen that extract doing the rounds where Tom Bradby asks Meghan if she's okay. Yeah. And she says it's been a struggle and that no one's actually asked her if she's okay. Yeah, I saw that clip. The documentary aired on Sunday night. It's an ITV documentary about their 10-day tour to Africa and it starts in Nyanga, which is known as the murder capital of South Africa. It's a really powerful place for them to start. Really interesting. They join a boxing lesson with teenage girls who are learning to protect themselves and some of the girls are interviewed and it's it's just a really moving, interesting start to their tour. They travel from South Africa to Angola where Harry visits landmines and an exact echo of his mother 20 years earlier mm. who famously walked through a partially cleared landmine and was accused of being too political because the abolition of landmines were a labour policy. The documentary is wonderfully shot but what everyone's been discussing and indeed this is where the issue is for some people is that for Harry and Meghan this was their panorama moment mm. echoing Princess Diana his interview with Martin Bashir where she mm-hmm. famously says there are three of us in the marriage basically it offers a look behind the curtain I think being part of this family in this role in this job every single time I see a camera every single time I hear a click every single time I see a flash it takes me straight back so in that respect it's, it's, the, it's the worst reminder of her life as opposed to the best um being here now 22 years later trying to finish what she started um yeah it will be it will be incredibly emotional but everything everything that i do reminds me of her um but as i said with with the role with the job and the and the sort of the pressures that come with that i get reminded of the bad stuff unfortunately so that is incredibly incredibly candid and and maybe if you're saying that this is his panorama You know, Martin Bashir went to Princess Diana specifically for an interview of where she was going to reveal the various struggles that she'd been through in her marriage with with her husband's infidelities, with her uh, eating battles. Is it did it feel inappropriate when you were watching it that this was an incredibly candid statement about their personal life in the middle of a documentary about a tour of Africa? So it happens on day nine of the. African tour which was the day that it came out that the Sussexes were suing the tabloids and as you say about that candor I think it was probably planned to coincide with the tour that revelation so that it would be filmed Mm. without them having to do it as a standalone interview so it is perhaps a more calculated candor you can see why they'd rather have it part of a documentary than have to do some separate public broadcast yes but it is certainly very revealing 
the presenter, Tom Bradby, asked them about suing the tabloids, you know, how they're feeling. He says, this news has come out today. And Prince Harry says all this really heartbreaking stuff about his mother's death still being a festering open wound and that every time he hears a shutter click, it takes him back. He says he'll never trust the tabloids again because he holds them responsible for his mother's death. In her part, Meghan says she never thought it would be easy marrying into the royal family, but that she thought it would be fair. And her British friend, she said, even warned her against it. I almost cried when I was watching Meghan uh, talking about the reality of her life compared to what she thought it would be. I found it very moving and I I ached for them both, to be honest. But as you say, a lot of people have felt very agonised about the context at which those revelations were made, that Meghan described her and Harry as existing, not living, whilst in one of the poorest countries, not just in Africa, but in the world. That's very uncomfortable. And for many people who struggle to pay their bills, even treat their child to a swimming class, or perhaps are rearing children alone without a partner who they love and who loves them. Hearing Meghan and Harry, who are deeply in love with each other, they are very physically affectionate in the documentary, deeply in love with their son, they have a lovely home, they have lots of money. To see them describing themselves as existing, not living, whilst in Africa for this documentary, might feel like not so much something they can empathise with, but that which alienates them. Yeah. I understand that viewpoint. I don't. I don't know if I agree with it, but it it feels it feels misguided and and just an inappropriate place for which to be for which to be talking about that. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. That I understand that viewpoint, but it's not mine personally. But I think it's really important to understand both viewpoints because when it comes to the royals, there is this extraordinary feeling which I really encounter any time I write, which I don't do much, but any time I write about um, Megan or tweet about them, is that you? Ha- it's like you have to pick a side. Mm. And it really comes back to that idea that you can't be equivocal anymore. I think there is validity and there is real feeling behind both of these points of view. Um, and I would give them equal weight. I feel sorry for them both. I do not think that mental health um, respects privilege. I believe yes. in my very core that they are separate things. The, yes, it, it doesn't spare anyone. The idea that money can buy happiness is wrong. The idea that scrutiny is the same as vitriol is also wrong. The fact that this royal couple is opening up about how vulnerable they feel, how hard it is, is powerful. It shatters the retro and damaging cliche about stiff upper lip. And Meghan and Harry, who are clearly trying to do so much for mental health and for their various charity initiatives, garnering more critique than Prince Andrew embedded in the Jeffrey Epstein Ferrari is absolute madness. Mm. Equally, I think public support is really, really important when it comes to the royal family. I mean, this sort of reminds me a little bit of Extinction Rebellion in that if you alienate the people you need support from, you're really stuck. And that's always been the case with the royal family. The public support has been incredibly important to the monarchy. And I think hearing them talk about how hard their lives are in the context of that documentary was very hard for a lot of people. And I don't just think this... I've read this. I did a lot of reading around on... I read loads of comments under articles or a lot on Twitter. And I saw people really divided down the middle between saying, you know, this is absolutely insane that anyone could criticise these two. Like, they've been through so much, it's so undeserved. And then on the other hand, people saying... Well, I read one comment on the Daily Mail that said, we will stop when we break them. They they are. There are these really polarised opinions. And of course, it comes back to the fact that this documentary 
that's meant to be about Africa and the work that's being done there and that needs to be done rather than the focus becoming isolated on their revelation about the tabloids, which Mm. it inevitably became. The level of dialogue around their revelations versus the level of dialogue around the subject of the documentary is testament to that. It vastly, vastly outweighs that. And almost everyone commenting or tweeting hadn't watched the documentary. Mm. They were responding to criticism of Harry and Meghan. And I think it's interesting to note that the documentary was only the fifth most watched programme that day rather than the lead. That's a valid insight into how people are responding to their openness that rather than feel like they are open, that some people feel like they are complaining. And then that is where these vile opinion pieces and comments come in. But I think just this idea that with the royal family, you have to either be so in support of everything they're doing or so against is... It's really dangerous and where I, I tweeted about how I could sort of see um, how the response was like unfolding to the documentary. And one person tweeted me saying that I was siding with the bullies and acknowledging for the, that for a lot of people it's hard to hear celebrities complain. And that was such a revealing insight to me in that we're kind of in our echo chambers, this need to be unequivocal and to use Paddy O'Connell's frustrated summation of me the other day, I don't want to be unequivocal. I want to be equivocal. It's really important to see both sides of this. You know, it's all very well discounting what every single royal biographer is saying about the tactic that the royals are taking. You know, it's easy for us to say, oh, they're just old old toads Mm -hmm. who want us all to button up. They don't want anyone talking about mental health. To an extent, I think that's true. But they they have also seen how this goes down. They saw... They know what they're talking about. They've seen dozens of royals and how public interest has waxed and waned. They've seen what happened with Diana and whatever your personal views and mine are very much, feel the need to stress that, that they do not deserve this. Not everyone feels like that. And it is equally important to acknowledge that. It's not siding with the bullies. It's arming ourselves with knowledge rather than painting people as demons and heroes. I totally agree. And I think... I'm similarly conflicted on it because, as you know, I'm anti-monarchy. I don't think it makes any sense. I don't think it makes any fucking sense in a democratic society. And I can see why the nonsensical, unfair disparity of what the royal family are, what they're born into and what they... what they, um, the privileges they have in their life, why it would feel so jarring galling to say it yeah but equally and, and and I do understand that and actually I would argue that the, the the kind of mess that Harry and Meghan have found themselves in and all the rules really like the the lack of life that they have and the lack of agency that they have juxtaposed with this immense immense privilege I think it's a prison for I think it's I think it's awful for them and I think it's awful for the people who aren't them as well. For me, this is just like... It's just awful. This is just proof <laughs> that the monarchy doesn't fucking work. It doesn't make sense for anyone. Um, but equally, like you, I have been appalled by the way that that woman has been treated, a lot of which I feel has been racially motivated. And I do really see the human in that man who is in a state of total post-traumatic stress after a incredibly incredibly unique and bizarre and totally unrelatable 
a tragedy that is the death of, of his mother that none of us can really understand. It's, it was so unique, the, the way that she died. And yeah, I just think it's a mess. <laughs> I read quite an interesting thing that said that, um, and this is like a much less extreme version of when, you know, various people say, well, either they want to be celebrities or they should just yeah. move away, you know, they should move to another country and not yeah. have any public face is that this is the struggle with the tabloids is not unique to them. Someone was writing, someone, you know, who's written about the royal family before, uh, was saying that Prince Charles had his own stage of feeling completely furious with all the lies, that the perceived lies in the paper. So he made the decision to not read anything about mm. himself, except he reads the Times every day for mm. the news. So he'll mm. probably still see some stuff about himself, but not mm. much. So he deliberately blinker to himself he realized that you could consistently open yourself up to all this and this is the same probably of any celebrity you could either read everything about yourself or you could choose to protect yourself yeah and that's the route prince charles took on the other hand princess diana read everything about herself and became completely consumed by it and i understand i really really do understand how both could engender a sense of control in a totally uncontrollable and very scary situation. I can see how both of those would be coping mechanisms. And I also understand that with the with Megan suing the tabloids, it's um, it was about her father's letter yeah. being leaked. Harry suing the tabloids was uh, the abuse of his wife. Yeah, that perhaps is a riskier one because. The royal family need the press. You know, if he, if, if Meghan and Harry want to carry on doing um, all the charity work they're doing, and they're doing a lot, like this whole sort of, you know, the royal family are lazy. It's such rubbish. Meghan barely took a maternity leave. And total side note, um, she is wearing button-down dresses in the whole 10-day documentary, um, and Archie's only five months old. So I would say that you could surmise that she's still breastfeeding. Mm. so she's very much still in that newborn bubble mm. and she's been doing a lot um so anyway if you want to still keep doing all of that you need the press so then it does become the game i mean tom bradby does say to her you must be very tired and she at the end of the 10 day tour and she says well we're all tired aren't we oh she does say that. Yeah, yeah it's not because it just takes so little i think i've really learned like i'm on a long journey of discovery with my own vast privileges in life and and my relationship to that but I've realized like really acknowledging what privilege is and meaning it really doesn't take that much it takes a lot of thinking but then saying it aloud takes so little so it's good that she's saying that she does check her privilege I think they both check their privilege I think it's it's just that this point of view it's just that how they were they are feeling, which, as I said, is just so valid. It was just the context of how they're expressing it. And maybe, God, I'm so someone that believes in articulating things and particularly how much the kind of new generation of roles have done about mental health. But when you give people an inch, they take a mile. And Harry and Meghan and letting people in into how they're feeling a little mm. bit into their lives is going to allow as much fury and it is fury they engender fury as much as they do empathy and it was just really interesting when i when i tweeted about this documentary yesterday and the responses were just so on one side or the other yeah you know it wasn't that you could hold an opinion either 
I was siding with the bullies and I was tone deaf. People are obsessed with the phrase tone deaf at the moment. Have you noticed it? Yeah. There's a a lot of people are tone deaf. Expressing that there is an opinion other than yours out there is the opposite of tone deaf. I agree. It's tone aware. Anyway, we could talk about this all day long and we won't because we talked about them again recently. But I think it's really worth a watch, the documentary, and I only hope that this doesn't blow up into something because Mm. it feels like it is supercharged yeah. at the moment. Cheerier news. Yes, good. Give it me. One of my favourite sub-genres of MP trivia was revealed this week. I didn't know that Dolls Polls had a sub-genre of MP trivia. Yeah, you know, when they say like where what their favourite thing to drink down the pub is and all that bollocks. The thing that I think is most revealing is uh, their favourite musicians. And to celebrate National Album Week, various politicians revealed their favourite <laughs> albums. Julian Knight chose Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, which is a seminal album. Luke Pollard chose the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Californication. Oh, my Lord. He said, Californication was the soundtrack of the summer of my first year at university in Exeter. In those balmy evenings, my Red Hot Chili Peppers CD was played time and time again for my little boombox. As a young 18-year-old, the exploration of adulthood, the exciting nights out, the freedom of being away from home for the first time all chimed with the Chili's album. Luke Pollard... I remember that summer well. It was, it was so overplayed. I don't think oh, no. I can listen to them now. <laughs> Do you remember when, like, every boy your age who could play three chords on guitar would play Californication? It's a very dirgy song as well when you play it on an acoustic guitar. Reminds me a little bit of Savage Garden when I was 12. That's all anyone <laughs> played for an entire term. <laughs> This choice completely stole my heart because th- these are two of my favourite albums of all time. Tom Watson chose Solid Air by John Martin. He said, it was a frost-coated day in a late autumn when my roommate at university inserted the cassette into the music system and changed my life. Few albums lay down that kind of light motif in a life as John Martin's Solid Air did for me. Astral Weeks did, so did the special's eponymous album. Yet Solid Air was like a mystic experience. John Martin's voice is like a magical instrument. Its timbre is like listening to the wind in a forest. This album is timeless and I'm blessed to have it within me. Nicky Morgan, on the other hand. Robbie Williams, I've been expecting you. (laughs) And quite in juxtaposition with uh, Tom Watson's poetry, she said, My favourite album is Robbie Williams' I've Been Expecting You. My favourite song of that album is No Regrets because it reminds me of my youth. This also led me to research the music choices of Desert Island Discs. I thought I'd give you my favourites. Nick Clegg chose Waka Waka, the theme to the 2010 World Cup by Shakira. (laughs) I like that song. David Cameron's choices were annoyingly good, which included um, The Smith's This Charming Man and Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue. And I remember him choosing Bob Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue because Sue Lawley does a completely unacceptable segue where he'd been talking about how his family were all... Um, historically involved with conservative politics and she said so they were tangled up in blue as well eh (laughs) which I just thought even for me was a stretch too far Diane Abbott very good choices she shows Ain't Too Proud to Beg by The Temptations Uh, The Things We Said Today by The Beatles and Bob Marley Exodus The Beatles feature very heavily in MP's choices on Desert Island Dist and part of me cynically thinks that's just because they know that everyone loves The Beatles Michael Heseltine chose all classical music and a Churchill speech. You can choose spoken word. Miriam Margulies chooses a lot of people doing soliloquies and and speeches. You can do comedy sketches, as long as it's an instrument or human voice. 
As opposed to an animal voice. Well, Anne Widdicombe chose the sounds of a hippo. <laughs> which is quite extraordinary. God, I accidentally really cued you up there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon chose Sisters Are Doing for, Doing It For Themselves, which I love. Theresa May chose Dancing Queen by Abbott. And this was years and years before she was Prime Minister and famously did the robot dance. Famously, Ed Miliband chose Angels by Robbie Williams. So Robbie Williams, for some reason, does seem to feature heavily on the uh, CD rack of MPs. And Tony Blair, who's Desert Islandist, is so good, um, chose In My Life by The Beatles and Wishing Well by Free. But my favourite bit of that episode, which I think I'm just going to have to insert because my Sue Lawley impression is subpar, is Sue Lawley's most withering put down of all time so it's Blair versus Major probably five months from now you're 20 points ahead in the polls but you've got according to other polls a problem with women they think you're smarmy too smooth and they don't like your hair what are you going to do about it <laughs> well you know people can uh, take me and like me or not as I am I don't think there's any point I think it's a I always thought at the time uh, with this publicity, that it was the most extraordinary and uh, gratuitous insult to women to believe that they're going to change their vote on the basis of my hairstyle. In other news, Jennifer Aniston has set up an Instagram account. Oh, I must follow her. I love Jennifer Aniston. I mean, I know that's a completely unique hot take, but I just think she's so cool and funny. I really like her. It's quite like liking Robbie Williams, maybe, isn't it? I also love Robbie Williams. I'm basic as fuck. Her first picture was a selfie of all six friends with the caption... And now we're Instagram friends too, which obviously sent the internet into meltdown. She's only posted four pictures so far and she already has almost 16 million followers. The power of friends lives on. And the woman who invented the baby gender reveal party has revealed that she regrets it. Jenna Myers Carvanidis invented the party in 2008 when she filled two duckling-shaped cakes with pink icing and blue icing before cutting into one of them in front of her excited family. She told The Guardian that she feels like she invented gunpowder and has major mixed feelings about the gender reveal party. Mm. She did one for her first daughter, but not for her next two children, as it places an aggressive energy on the gender of your child, she says. Uh, I think that's very true. I mean, I don't like any sort of that pomp and ceremony around revealing things about babies and weddings. I just find it unbearable, as you well know. You know, when people put their baby in a in an outfit holding a chalkboard saying, today I'm three weeks old, or mummy and daddy are in... Get-. I just can't bear all that. But uh, I think that I think that's very true about what she said about how it places too much importance on uh, the definables of, of gender, which increasingly, you know, we're talking more and more about how much that's a kind of conditioned construct. And actually, I now go... I know, in a lot, I know a lot of our listeners won't like this and they'll think that this is me being hyper-woke, but I am now much more sensitive when I talk to pregnant women or men expecting children about asking them if they know the gender. Because I do know of some couples that have said to me that they found it strange how much assigned gender at birth seems to be the thing that people are most excited about or somehow think will um, define a child that is yet obviously completely undefinable. So it's something that I'm just more sensitive to now. I was slightly told off about it once, so I think about it more. It's much more rare now to find out the gender of your baby, which is interesting. I found out with both of mine, but I am... 
the rarity mm. in my friends, I think. Actually, most people have left it as a surprise. So I think that's quite interesting. I think that's done a bit of a... Because obviously no one used to be able to find out. Then you yeah. could find out. So I bet there was a peak because yeah. it's like a new, you know, scientific breakthrough. And now people are going back to mystery and surprise. Yeah. Maybe that's a good thing. Some people... Some I'm pe- very nosy. <laughs> some people do want to know the gender and gender is something that 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 they're curious about and excited about and helps them imagine or realise what their new member of their family will be. And if they want to talk about that, I'm always so happy to talk about that. I think it's something increasingly that people will be more sensitive to because that's not the stance of lots of parents. I think the way she put it was actually really apt, uh, the idea of an aggressive energy. Yeah, exactly. On the gender. And Sainsbury's has stopped selling fireworks after a petition of 300,000 signatures last year. The UK spends £20 million on fireworks per year. The memories of waving sparklers held tightly by mitten-clad hands and shivering through firework displays really does bring me such nostalgia. And I'd love the idea of showing my daughter fireworks, you know, lifting her up onto my shoulders and blowing her mind with the incredible colours in the sky, which I know she would love. But the fact is that 4,500 people go to A&E with firework injuries every year. According to the NHS, half of them are aged 18 and under. So it does seem sensible that their availability is limited. This is not to make light of the thousands of incidents that I know happen every year with home-blown fireworks in the backs of gardens. But my favourite story I've heard is a girl who went to a fireworks party in her friend's garden and she wasn't hurt, but her tights were blown off. Her tights were blown off. I love it. I hope. I, I. I think back garden fireworks are probably the really dangerous bit. I hope that there's still, even if they're really rare, there's still somewhere you can go to watch a public oh, fireworks display. Definitely, they're just. It's just like what you don't want is a drunk dad. You know, Catherine wheeling his backside. Exactly. Exactly. And and that I have to say, I do always feel quite nervous about that. But those public displays, I'm sure, will just be properly monitored and continue. Um, there was some tragic news uh, this week that I wanted to talk about, which is the death of the great, great journalist and editor Deborah Orr, who died age 57 from cancer. Deborah was in the past the first female editor of The Guardian Weekend, but she was best known and widely, widely adored as a columnist for The Independent, iPaper and most prolifically The Guardian. She was a fierce and very funny writer, tackling really difficult and divisive topics, both social, political, economic. There was nothing that she would shy away from. She had immense, immense integrity and a distinctly interrogative style um but was also very straightforward which i think is missing from journalism now i was lucky enough to have known deborah a very little bit in real life and she was riotously fun and terrifyingly clever and hilariously uncensored and a very stylish cool beautiful woman and despite being known for her acerbicness she was also incredibly incredibly kind it's kind of a testament to how much her work transcended any type of person in that when we were coming home from Dublin and we were reading all the tributes online on Twitter there just wasn't any type of writer or editor who wasn't paying tribute to her and saying how important her work had been to them the only other person I think that's happened with is AA girl yes exactly everyone else seems to be um 
great writers who I think should transcend are still yeah. pigeonholed as being for a certain type of person. So yeah. that's, as you say, really rare. My favourite detail of her obituary was she held an annual Christmas No Men Allowed party for female friends at her house in Stockwell. Suzanne Moore, who's another wonderful journalist, who's a very close friend of hers, tweeted, Thank you for the many kind messages and thoughts about my brilliant friend, Deborah Orr. Never could get that woman off the dance floor. So many tales to tell. One day, gather close, raise a glass and live and love as fiercely as she did. I loved her. Deborah's memoir is out in January. It's called Motherwell, and I've briefly mentioned it on the high-low before. I'll review it in more uh, depth when it's closer to the publication date. But just to flag at this point, if you're looking to immerse yourself in Deborah's writing uh, to pre-order it, it's a beautifully written story about her working-class childhood in the Scottish town of Motherwell and her difficult and uh, complicated relationship with her mother. It's a really compelling story, but also acts as a fascinating feminist text and it's already received glowing reviews. Deborah leaves behind so much writing to learn from and to be inspired by and this is something that Pandora and I ask all the time by young writers which is how to be a writer and the advice that we always have is that the best thing you can do which is the thing I did in my teens and in my 20s and still do now is find the voices that you love and then study them and consume everything that they've written And you will absorb something of them uh, through that activity. And Deborah's writing really is the writing that is worthy of that level of kind of study and consumption. Uh, In the show notes, I'll link to some of my favourite of her columns. There's a very funny one in praise of drinking at lunchtime. There's a very good column on coercive control in relationships. There's a column that I love on the NHS called The NHS is Only Human Like the Rest of Us. And there's also a brilliant one that's very much part of the Hilo's ethos, which is a lament on the loss of rational and reasonable thinking, particularly in politics, which I'd like to quote from. It's been coming on for a while, so I can't claim any eureka moment, but something did crystallise this year. What I changed my mind about was people. More specifically, I realised that people cannot be relied upon to make rational choices. Humans like to think we're rational. Some of us are more rational than others. But essentially, we're all slaves to our feelings and emotions. The trick is to realise this and be sure to guard against it. It's something that, in the modern world, we're not good at. Authentic emotions are valued over dry, dull, authentic evidence at every turn. I think that as individuality has become fetishised, our belief in our right to make half-formed snap judgments based on little more than how we feel has become problematically unchallengeable. When Uma Thurman declared that she would wait for her anger to abate before she spoke about Harvey Weinstein, it was, I believe, in recognition of this tendency to speak first and think later. Good for her. The value of calm reasoning is not something that one sees acknowledged very often at the moment. Often the feelings and emotions that form the basis of important views aren't so very fine. Sometimes humans understand and control their emotions so little that they sooner or later coagulate into a roiling soup of anxiety, fear, sadness, self-loathing, resentment and anger, which expresses itself however it can, finding objects to project its hurt and confusion onto, like immigrants or liberals or Tories or women or men. That's such a good extract and... I feel like that whole thing about rational thought is really applicable to what we were talking about with the royal family. Yeah. So often the response to them is irrational. And and a reminder to me that that is still very much something I need to master. I totally. S- really, every day is something I need to master is to think rather than feel. There's a whole archive of her beautiful writing 
for you to plunder. And as Dolly says, she will link to some of her favourite columns by Deborah in the show notes. Anything in the mailbag this week, Doll? A listener called Talia wrote in with this Hilo exclusive. <laughs> a friend of mine like you was outraged by how often he turned up to the cinema only to sit through adverts and trailers nearly as long as the film itself. So for the past year or so, he has diligently been recording the wait time for each film he sees. And now exclusively for the Hilo, I can reveal his findings. Thank you very much, Tolia. It was an incredibly extensive list. So um, here's a skim of the results for listeners. A Star is Born, 32 minutes. Fantastic Beasts, 28 minutes. Creed 2, 30. Aquaman, 29. The Favourite, 24. Stan and Ollie, 12. X-Men, 30. Toy Story, 26. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 20. The average wait time is 26.3 minutes. I know what you're thinking. My friend is sad and has no life. You are not wrong. (laughs) But at least now we all know that we can turn up to the cinema 26 minutes after the start time and not miss any of the film. Please accept this information as a gift from me to you. Thank you very much, Talia. So they all fall slightly around the same mark, which is, I mean, I think that's too long. What do you think? I think it's a bit too long. Yeah, I think it's a bit too long. Because as you mentioned last week, Particularly if you're someone that has kids and has to pay a babysitter, that means that you're adding that you could be out of the house for four hours at that rate if you go to see a long film. So we just need to all wise up and get in there later, which means these adverts won't get seen. A listener wrote in to confirm that interns are in fact asked to check if celebrities are unfollowing each <laughs> other in the middle of scandals. I'm an intern and last week I was actually asked to check Instagram to see if the husbands had unfollowed each other in the Wagatha Christie case. I must say it was the highlight of my entire experience. I'd think if you weren't asked to do that right now as an intern, it would be remiss of the publication. <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week, Pandora? I was very moved by a piece by Lucy Pavia for the Evening Standard on miscarriage and how the sadness of miscarriage can build up like soot. I've already sent it to my friends who've suffered a miscarriage or multiple miscarriages. It's still not something that's talked about enough. I am noticing a real shift. Several brave friends in the last few months have walked into a date we have and responded to my question of how are things with bit shit actually I'm in the middle of a miscarriage or I had a miscarriage last week or last month I can't believe how common they are and yet they are traumatic in so many ways not just mentally you think you're having a baby and then you are not but because of the toil it takes on your body which often thinks and acts like it's still pregnant Mm. when it's not not to mention the raging hormones I feel enormously sorry and empathetic to any woman going through that and for any of our listeners who are or have friends or families that are or who have I really recommend this piece here's an extract from the beginning after four miscarriages my sister-in-law invented something called miscarriage bingo a list of things people say after you've had one big hitters include at least you got pregnant it's important not to feel stress and have you thought about giving up dairy slash sound bathing slash this fancy clinic but talk to a woman who's had one herself and she's unlikely to offer up advice or post-match analysis. I'm sorry, one woman said to me. They're a total fucking hell show. After my third miscarriages, I fell down an internet rabbit hole reading stories which felt similar to my own. So in the interest of paying it forward, here is mine. It's a really powerful piece, and I will link to that in the show notes. In much lighter news, I was very tickled by a piece on the popular nostalgia account 90s anxiety on Instagram. It's just girls in high-waisted jeans. I think every millennial I know follows them. 
Um, and this piece on Man Repeller, they interviewed the creator of the account, who remains anonymous. Clearly, that's the thing. <laughs> but it is a man. How ridiculous. He talks through... Maybe he feels like he can't be so candid in these maybe, times. Maybe, maybe. He talks the website through his top five liked pictures and what he thinks is their charm. And I just wanted to relay some of those here. In fifth place is Cameron Diaz and Umbrella, 1994. You know the one, black slip dress. Yeah. Black chunky boots. Oh, I love that one. Can. She's on a beach. He said, I think it continues to resonate because of the pointed aesthetics. Cameron's slip dress, her Doc Martens, the fact that she's wearing all these things on a beach. In fourth place, Kate and Johnny in Repose, also in 94. He says this is probably one of the greatest photographs of that time period. But was that him lying on her tummy? Mm. I love that picture. And she's naked. I received some criticism because Johnny Depp is in it, but posting it was not meant to be a plug for him. I posted it because it's a beautiful, intimate piece of art shot by Annie Leibovitz. I have to be careful about posting images with nudity, though, because there's so much scrutiny on my account. Do you know why else I love that picture? Because it's John. It's Johnny Depp lying on... Uh, on Kate Moss's tummy and it reminds me of the picture that iconic picture of John Lennon lying against Yoko Ono's tummy and there's something that feels like it's almost an abstract nod to the the maternal image that you that you see in classical art it's so beautiful <laughs> but I love I love that picture I love I mean obviously I know that Johnny Depp is very problematic but that image and what it represents about men and women I think is just beautiful in third place, we have The Schwim, 95. He says, when I see Instagrams of the cast of Friends, I've noticed that most of the time people seem to be focusing more on the other actors besides David Schwimmer. So I wanted to put the spotlight on him. It's this picture of him holding a rose, CJ likes it, backwards <laughs> baseball cap and a rose in his teeth doing the, what is that, the gnarly, the gnarly finger? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the 90s gnarly dude fingers. He said, I was taken aback by how awesome this photo is of him because it's a really high-quality Polaroid, but also the contrast between his behaviour in this shot and his style as Ross Geller. Yeah. It's a true behind-the-scenes moment and one I hadn't seen before. Number two, God, Dolly, you'll love this one, Bill Clinton's Cat, 1992. <laughs> it's a picture of paparazzi surrounding socks in Washington. <laughs> He said, I was so excited when I found a high-quality version of this photo. I don't think Socks gets out that much when he was in the White House. So these photographers were jumping at the opportunity. There are this crowd of paparazzi, one was even lying on the floor, and Socks has just crashed there. He said, it's so obscure and specific, which is why I think it really resonated. It's also funny to think about a cat being followed by paparazzi. Socks had a lot of fans. In first place, and we shouldn't be surprised, such is her pop culture, wait a young Kim Kardashian in 1993, but it is pretty good. She is wearing baggy uh, Levi's, I think, or something, with rips at the knee that are so low that you can see her white knickers above her hip bones. Yeah, that was the And thing. then a bit of flesh. Yeah. A white T-shirt, a top knot, and she's holding her pager. She's, like, showing off her pager. <laughs> um, and he says, I found this photo when Kim Kardashian posted it to her story to promote a 90s-inspired beauty project launch obviously he said it was such an iconic photo of a social media icon that i grabbed it and posted it a few days later he said i love the contrast between what she's wearing in the photo and the kind of things she wears now and it's so distinctive because it places an emphasis on the multitude of 90s style trends present she has also got those like long strands that i actually yeah yeah 
debuted just the other day and I think she's wearing a choker and some sort of like purpley lipstick and also those Adidas shell trainers that actually did come back anyway it is oh just I loved that so nostalgic isn't it I love that I've got I love that account as well it's such a good account it is very very popular all those 90s nostalgia accounts I think I tagged you in a picture ages ago it might not have been 90s anxiety but it's another one of uh, the couple in the 90s on the floor of a courtroom uh, sharing out their Beanie Baby collection in the divorce courts. I absolutely love that image. (laughs) I do know that you love that one. God, that is amazing. And again, that's such a moment in history. I still have all my Beanie Babies, by the way. I know, it's one of my favourite facts about you. Me and my mum are just waiting for Halo to ratchet up the price on eBay. (laughs) And I've been reading lots of Rebecca Solnit's essays. She's an American writer and historian who writes a lot about feminism, politics and violence against women and has published over 20 books. Her most famous essay collection, I'd say, is probably Men Explain Things to Me. And I've been enjoying the more recent The Mother of All Questions and a proof of her next one, which is published in March next year by Granta, which is called Recollections of My Non-Existence, which is about the many ways in which young women are reduced I really recommend these essays for understanding the way in which women both adapt to the world but can also resist their own erasure. They're very political, but they're also really empowering and really galvanising and they're very simple to read. And there is masses of Solnit content out there, not just her books, but essays she's written, articles. And I only discovered her relatively recently. She's very well known but I'm really enjoying her writing. So those are my recommendations for you. What about you, Dolly? I loved Booker Prize winner Bernadine Evaristo's piece for The Guardian, which explores a history of black writers in literature, memoir and poetry and discusses the writings that inspired her and shaped her as a young woman. I love this piece as well. It's great, isn't it? In particular, she focuses on the revolution that she argues is taking place currently in British publishing with a with a boom of black writers, which she thinks is in part thanks to the interconnectivity and the public platform and the sharing space of the internet and the kind of unedited uh, space of the internet, but warns against complacency in thinking that this marks permanent progress. One thing I have learned is that the future won't look after itself. We cannot take any developments for granted. If those of us who are considered marginal stop campaigning, we experience social regression. I wonder what will happen if the support systems, networks and development programmes for people of colour cease to exist. The plethora of books currently being published is astonishing, but we must be wary because today's boom is not the result of a steady incremental transition. It has exploded out of a void. I have written in the past about fads in the literary world for writers of colour, especially the period in the mid to late 90s when there were more young black men and women publishing fiction than ever before, with a tendency towards coming-of-age narratives. By the noughties, most of these writers had disappeared. And then she goes on to talk about the what she says is sort of an uncertain future of the internet and therefore could mean um, an uncertain future for a kind of wave of young black, particularly female writers who she feels have really benefited from the arguable kind of democracy of online space and online awareness of writers. 
What is the role of books in our brave new world where knee-jerk reactions predominate, moral outrage is the prevailing orthodoxy, and ideas must be compressed to sound bites? Instagram might shut down one day and suddenly nobody will care about your 80,000 followers. Relevance in the offline world is key. Conversely, the older writers, artists and activists who eschew social media are missing out on bringing their wisdom, experience and perspective to these debates. It's an exciting political, intellectual and creative space and we need to be a part of it. And if not, we must ask ourselves if we are relinquishing our responsibility towards the future. Arts activists are benefiting from the desire of the multinationals to be aligned with woke young people and to exploit their marketability. The revolution, or rather what we might think of as this countercultural moment where those previously without a platform are having their say, has already been commodified. Those of us who are alert to the capriciousness of this should trumpet a note of caution to those who are swept up in the glamour of the moment. We need to ask ourselves how best we can affect change for our constituencies that is sustainable rather than fashionable. My answer is that the spirit of entrepreneurship, community and arts activism will sustain us long after it's no longer woke to be woke. I just loved this piece, not only because it highlighted lots of uh, historic black writers whose work I'm less familiar with and provides a really varied reading list, um, but I also think it's just so, so important, that message of of how we make sure the incorporation of black writers and thinkers into mainstream publishing is not just a trend and looking at how it can be a sustainable, vital part of culture that's not exclusively glued to internet culture. I was really interested by where she talks about um, what had happened in publishing in the mid-90s, Yeah, how she traces these waves, because I do think often when we talk about... Um, social commentary it's always focused very much on the present without looking at what's happened before and that sounds really interesting that she's seen she's sort of been tracking it and also that she is talking about everyone together I really like that she's talking about older writers she's talking about young writers she's talking about writers that exist offline online it feels really like this incredibly thorough rigorous yeah. yeah really rigorous really conclusive um just a really interesting piece. Yeah. I loved listening to a kind of Anita O'Day tribute on Fresh Air. Uh, Anita O'Day is a jazz singer who would have been 100 last week and Fresh Air, who always do outstanding segments and reviews and criticism on jazz if uh, any of our listeners are jazz fans. Fresh Air, at the top, there's a brief biography of who she was and why she was such a radical figure, both as a musician and as a woman. She was one of the first properly cool jazz artists of the 50s, and she was determined to be almost um, a lead musical instrument as part of a band, rather than a girl singer. And a girl singer at that time was meant to wear an evening gown and sing the melody. And she did you know, crazy dancing on stage. She was a scat performer. She was incredibly avant-garde for the time and I think would have paved the way for so many female rock musicians um, who did the same in, in decades after her. Uh, if you listen to her extensively, you can hear that the way she uses her voice is is more, and the way she phrases, is more like a musical instrument and it is it's so beguiling and fascinating to listen to. And she says in the uh, interview that they play that she had her uvula removed when she was young. Uvula? I think that's how I say it, which is like the the like floppy thing that waggles down at the back of your throat. Is that epiglottis? 
She's called it an uvula, I think. Well, clearly it's not your epiglottis. (laughs) (laughs) Both very satisfying words. Um, And she said that that meant that she has an absence of vibrato. So when you listen to her singing jazz singers, female jazz singers traditionally had had quite um, a stylized vibrato and she had more of a... It's almost like a trumpet sound. It's like a really smooth, beautiful, controlled phrasing. Uh, They play an interview from 1987. Terry Gross interviews her... um, when she was already quite old at that point. Um, but she's still just so, so cool and and just such a badass woman and just, you can tell, was truly modern at the time. She said that she never wanted to have, like, a domestic life. She never wanted to have children. She never wanted kind of like a permanent home. So she just dedicated her life to being on the road and at that time that meant being one of the boys and she developed a heroin addiction that she had for 15 years and it was a very very hard drinker and Terry Gross said do you think that's because you were trying so desperately hard to keep up in what was such a male dominated world and she said I haven't thought about that but probably that's what it was um the bit that I wanted to play is when she's talking about the fact that she was repeatedly jailed for smoking heroin and she tells Terry Gross that she thinks that that really helped with her career because <laughs> she thinks that people wanted to come and see the girls sing who had been in jail the week before and she think you know it's an uncomfortable thing to admit but she said I think it did me huge favors yeah and uh she then talks about uh going to rehab and she cleaned up by the end of her life but it's a lovely interview and you can tell that terry gross is uh, is completely charmed by her i'm also going to include her sign off of the interview because you just get a taste of how charismatic she was and then i want all of our listeners to do themselves a favor and go listen to her singing sweet georgia brown which i might persuade cj to put in as a little music break there was a period of i guess close to 15 years when you were using heroin and still performing most most of that time true you were convicted several times on on drug charges. How difficult did that make it for you to get bookings in certain cities that had... It helped. Um, that showbiz. <laughs> seriously, it helped? I can't tell if you're kidding or not. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> that showbiz, it does. It, it helps you. They come to look at the girl that went to, to jail for smoking dope. Man, I'd work a club and they'd be standing out down the street around the corner getting in to see the girl just got out of jail. Yeah. that make you pretty angry? Didn't make me angry. Business was great. (laughs) Come on, where are you? (laughs) I want to thank you very much. Well, I want to thank you for even considering me. It's very nice of you to bring me forward to all the listening fans of your age, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Terry, and my best to fresh air. Is that what it's called? Yep. (laughs) Let's have some fresh air, and I'm with you, babe. I'm with you, babe. Check it out. Hilo comes from Stripe and Stare. Stripe and Stare have been called the most comfortable knickers in the world. I have three pairs of them and I have to say I do know that I'm in for a comfortably sheathed jacksie on the days that I pull them out from the knicker drawer. 
Stripe and stair knickers don't ride up, so there's no more hungry bum. This is a well-documented affliction of mine. I even wrote an entire article about it once. So I'm always happy to hear of anti-hungry bum undergarments. They're so comfortable you forget you're wearing them, leaving you free to take on the day. Can I tell you a secret, Dolly? I was wearing a pair this morning. Why aren't you any more? Because I like to feel loosey-goosey and easy-breezy for the high-low record. Every pair of stripe and stair is a pair of guilt-free ninnies because they are sustainably sourced. Only 2% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced, which is pretty shocking for a product that we all wear every day, unless you're a real dame, in which case... Hola! I, I take both my hat and my knickers off too. Stripe and stair knickers are sourced from beechwood trees and are softer than cotton, use 95% less water in their production and give no VPL as they lie perfectly flat against the skin. Stripe and stair have been a hit with the press, having been recently described by the Evening Standard as insanely cool and described by the Telegraph Stella as the comfiest knickers around. Pandora Sykes describes them as the knickers I wear every day. And no, I was not paid to say that. Hilo listeners can get 20% off their knickknacks by using the code HILO on www.stripeandstare.com at the checkout. They're also available at Selfridges and on shopbop.com for international listeners. Many thanks to Stripe and Stare, both from us and our bottoms. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It's our favourite time of year. The Oxford English Dictionary have announced their new words that they have added into the dictionary. This is actually such an important moment in the Hilo's annual calendar. I might get us an actual analogue calendar for 2020. More on that in due course. 605 words were added into the dictionary last week, with 203 of them being new words which appear for the first time, and the rest being sub-entries, so new definitions added to already existing words. That includes whatevs, my mum's favourite, and pokey. Believe it or not, I have some pokey in my fridge right now. Do you? I bought it from M&S at the airport yesterday, which shows that this Hawaiian cuisine is a food trend that has truly gone mass. I've always been so fascinated by this annual event. And generally, as it's such a patchwork language, there are so many bits and pieces that are added and cut and borrowed and stolen. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again now before the high lows inbox gets flooded with linguistic snobbery. I think the willingness that the authorities of the English language in terms of the, the the official monitors of the English language, the way that they continually try to integrate modernity into the lexicon, I think is so wonderful. Language is the tool we use to live. It's a reflection of how we live. And I think it's so important for it to acknowledge the different ways in which we live and speak and how times are changing, particularly as, you know, these, these um, various revisions of the OED will be documented pieces of history that will be studied in the future. And I just hate linguistic snobbery because every year when these words are added, you always get a piece from someone saying that 
language should be should be more kind of less sacred. now though i think i feel like you used to get much more of those 15 years ago yeah but as you're saying this as well i was just wondering i quite like to read what's been taken out of the dictionary to make space because they can't exponentially keep making the dictionary longer can they that's a really interesting question well, i mean i've got six hundred thousand words in it so I actually don't even know what it looks like as a hardback. They must, because words do fall into a derelict state, yeah. basically. And I Obsolutes. wonder I wonder at what point... They get shafted. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I'd like to read that. Let's see if we can find anything in that. But yeah, I'm glad that there are less of those pieces because I think that some of it... Well, I just generally am very intolerant of, of any sort of linguistic or grammatical snobbery just because I think some of the greatest writers of our time are people who actively flouted the kind of rules of language. So, yeah, I love that I love that this happens every year. I'm loving that chirps has made it into there. <laughs> and I would say a little too late, cocktees. I remember that word being bandied about in the mid-noughties um and i'm also amazed it took so long for easy breezy to be incorporated also chewy has been added which baffles me i don't think i've ever heard that before chewy for chewing gum oh i have heard chewy for chewing gum i thought you meant just chewy as a word no no so how would you how would you say it chewy would you like a piece of chewy yeah right have you got any chewy okay cocktees as in a, a woman that leads a man on. I looked it up. How have they phrased that? Because it's, you've got to be a little bit careful. It was so funny. It said, a woman who engages in the activity of cock-teasing. So they, <laughs> I love that. They've completely, like, bowed out of any kind of political... Yes, exactly. This is really exciting. I hadn't actually thought about the political connotations. It's quite a problematic word. Yeah, you're right. Thought. Yeah. Interesting that they chose to put it in now. <laughs> Do you know what? I wonder if problematic is in there. Increasingly, I have an issue with the word problematic. I need to really reassess how I use that word. Oh, I have a problem with problematic. I have a problem with toxic. I have a problem with I have a problem with loads of words. That It's just overextension and overuse of so many words at the moment. But it's so funny, isn't it, that when you are on the exact same corner of the internet that you and I are on, reading the exact same things and engaging and listening the to the exact words, same debate, you do find yourself acquiescing to these words that you know have semantic issues so I truly think that problematic is something we need to really reassess what that means and yet I do use it all the time I've used it in this episode I think it's just about not using the same words all the time isn't it maybe we should we should do our hit list for each other and every time I say I should say now do you really mean toxic Pandora or are you searching for a more nuanced word I can already tell you what your number one is what beautiful I say beautiful all the time yeah do I (laughs) a beautiful piece of writing Oh, I do think a lot of things are beautiful. <laughs> That's good. It's better that you think more things are beautiful than ugly. That's an interesting question. What words do you think you use a lot? I say gorgeous quite a lot. Beautiful, gorgeous. Got such an old lovey. Fetid. No, I don't. I just like saying it. <laughs> Different variations of the word hanging and steaming have been added. Hanging relating to a hangover and steaming related to being really drunk. Are there any hangover related words that you think they've missed, Ollie? Yes, beer fear. <laughs> which everyone will know is the existential panic you have hung over the day after a night out when you try to recollect everything you said the night before. Beer blanket. I haven't even heard that one. Do you know beer blanket, CJ? No, I never heard that one. Uh, maybe just my friends and I use it. Beer blanket is when you're uh, when you drink enough so you don't need a coat. <laughs> so you say, oh, you need a jacket. No, I'll have a beer blanket on by 10. And then I'm sorry for this one. 
but I can't not say it. Alcopoo. Alcopoo? Do you know Alcopoo? Not heard that. And that's definitely not in the OED. And Alcopoo is the... uh, I think we can all get there. Is beer goggles in there, do you think? Yeah, maybe. Fake news has been added. I can't quite believe that didn't make it in last year. Yeah. It was the word of the year, wasn't it, last year? Quite surprised by promposal. It's a bit of an awkward one. That's when someone invites you to the high school prom. Promposal? Yeah. It's a portmanteau, I suppose. Strange that that should be in the English dictionary. Although, lots I suppose, of in- uh, Americanisms of- are included. Lots of British schools have proms now. Do they? Mm-hmm. I had a leavers ball, and it will come to no surprise to anyone that I had no promposal. No one invited me. I wore a dress from Coast. Got I com- thought you'd have worn a dress from Coast. Got completely actually. leathered and uh, burnt my hand on the kebab van hot plate. <laughs> Were you so impatient that you couldn't yeah. wait for the kebab van to hand so it to you? And instead, you hand. went in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, doll. I know. The heart bleeds for teenage Dolly. <laughs> I feel like they're about 10 years out of date with chillax. I don't know any teenager that would use that now, given that millennials no. use that word. Unless it's having a retro comeback, like stunning. Because oh, yeah. I have noticed a lot of girls in their early 20s using the word stunning now. Oh, my God. In North London growing up, that's always so, like, babe, you look stunning. You look stunning. Well, I think that's definitely coming back, but I'm just not sure about chillax. Can our younger listeners, so that would be the older Gen Zers and the youngest millennials, 22 I think is the youngest millennial, can you let us know whether chillax is a valid word for your age? Do you know what word I've heard young people saying recently, and I'm so glad it's come back, because it was the word of my youth, and I love it. Fab. Fit. Fit. I've heard so many boys using that word recently. (laughs) Don't give me those eyes, Pandora. And I really like it. I love the word fit. Yeah, fit's good. And I've heard people, I've heard people under 30 use the word fit to describe things other than people's physical attraction. Oh, I like that. That food is, that burger, that burger was fit. Oh no, I don't like that. That article was fit. That article, no, that is just, that's just... That ergonomic chair you're sitting on, fit. <laughs> this God, chair is definitely sounds not so fit. old. I suddenly feel so old in this segment. That ergonomic <laughs> chair is fit. Probably because no one, unless they're old enough to have a bad back, has an ergonomic chair. <laughs> My absolute fave is Omni Shambles, which first appeared in the satire show, The Thick of It, and it means a situation that has been comprehensively mismanaged. I intend to employ that one a lot. But just for, like, everyday stuff, like... You know, we have a Friday night when nothing... Clearly, I'm not having many of these at the moment, but when nothing quite lines up. Yes, I know those like very well. half the party are a bit late for... I feel like this could definitely be applied to some of your Fridays, Dolly. Like, some people are too late for dinner, which yeah. then means, like, you, you, nothing quite lines up. You can't get a seat in the bar... Some are too drunk, some are too yes. sober, you can't find the middle ground. Oh, that's an omni shambles. That's an omni shambles, you're totally right. Introduce that to your WhatsApp gals group <laughs> and see how it goes down. I think there could actually be a whole section of the OED which is just for words and phrases that came out of the thick of it. And I do think that if they've added as many words in as they have this year for Star Wars, this year they've added in Jedi, lightsaber and the Force. How lightsaber only just got in I know but if they're doing that then I think we can have a whole thick of it section in the OED 
Four variations of something have been added into the dictionary to reflect regional variants. Something, something, something and something. Presumably there are a lot of words that they could do that with. My husband and I were suddenly wondering why regional variants are a thing now and are they going to be applied to... Mm. That can make a very long dictionary. That feels like it could be endless because, as you said, that feels like it's encompassing regional dialect rather than the rest of these words feel like it's more shorthand of the internet Mm -hmm. or shorthand of popular culture Mm -hmm. i actually because that the something one that you said with those variations feel like it's just encompassing estuary english so i was i was interested to see if there were any northern variations on words or pronunciations on words that were included and i looked up nout nout is in there that's exactly what we were thinking about. really yeah i didn't look How it up funny. but i said i bet you that is in there i bet there are already a lot of variants from the north oh, and God, so maybe our brains are now completely fused it's so weird so maybe they're trying to catch up with the fact that they'd already been quite representative yeah. in terms of northern words well it says northern english underneath so Maybe, but but then that just feels like that could be endless. That could be endless. I imagine working at the OED now does probably feel quite endless. <laughs> Simples has been added in after Theresa May used it in February this year when she told uh, the SNP's Westminster leader Ian Blackford that the best way to end Brexit uncertainty was to vote for a deal. Simples. That's hilarious. I miss that. Oh, the Evening Standard noted that for most people it would be more commonly associated with the meerkat in Compare the Market. Yeah. I love those adverts. The new one where the uh, baby meerkats are in Bella Italia or somewhere similar, eating pasta. <laughs> My heart. That's when you know as an ad copywriter you've really nailed it, when your catchphrase makes the OED. They are unbelievably popular, those meerkats. My mother has one of the stuffed meerkats. They make, like, meerkat merch. I wonder if the person... This is a totally different conversation, but I am just interested... In that there must have been other catch like phraseology from adverts that's become so iconic it's been incorporated into into dictionaries. When it's that much of a boom, I wonder if you have some sort of like IP on the idea. Like the man who one day said, Oh, I know maybe it should be meerkats. I wonder if he's getting a cut of all the stuffed meerkat merchandise. No, because I think that that would just be um when you when are you when you're in an ad agency. Um, that's your creative division. Yeah. That's the creative agency. And it's probably collaborative. It's probably not one brain. It's probably five brains that come up with that or whatever. One of my favourite things to do is to talk to people who work at ad agencies to ask what are kind of widely seen as the most successful ad campaigns. Oh, like, interesting. What's that sort of like barometer that you need yeah. to be? And the ones that I do often hear are compare the meerkat just because it's it's now in common parlance. Like yes. when it makes it off the telly, into like regular conversation the gorilla on the drums for Cadbury oh yeah god I loved that one and the man in the denim hot pants and heels dancing on the roof oh yeah I remember that what's one what's that for well there we go it hasn't okay, been hasn't out. Made do you know what I was thinking of in terms of politicians using ad sound bites do you remember calm down dear the Michael Winner advert yeah now that was for car insurance wasn't it calm down dear it's just a commercial I can't remember what it was for, but I do know that I didn't realise that Michael Winner was anything other than a man <laughs> on commercials until much later. It's like incredibly famous film director. <laughs> I thought he was like the really fake tanned guy, you know, Havitoff in Bridget Jones. I thought he was just a Julian. 
gutting for him he took the big money advert it's his fault <laughs> but i remember someone i think david cameron or someone said in the in the houses of parliament calm Con- down it was him. david cameron yeah. yeah he said it to a female mp was it like diane abbott or something anyway we digress perhaps the most timely to be added into the dictionary but one i only learned recently nomophobia well what's that fear of not having your phone oof patting your pockets oof i'm quite surprised that fubbing isn't in there Fubbing. Not the same as frottage, I know what you're like. <laughs> it's when you snub someone because your f- mobile phone is present. You don't even need to be on it, you can just be distracted by its presence. You get annoyed with me about that. It's very much a proven thing, it's why digital detoxes now. Do you remember when there was a phase when people used to put their mobile phones in the middle of the... T- their mobile phones? In the middle of the table, and they'd, you'd, like, part, you'd make like a stack? Yeah. And then it made sure that like you know, everyone's phones were all central. Now they say you shouldn't do that because it means that it's still centralised in the conversation. Yeah, You should have your phones in your bag instead, which is where Ringly became a thing. Does that ever take off? No, I don't even know what that is. It's when you wear it. It's basically meant you could be free of your mobile phone, but you're not going to miss an important call. So you would wear like a cocktail ring, like a stone, and all about 100 quid. Um, Ringly aren't the only people that do it, but they were one of the startups. And then you would program it so that when a certain person called or texted, it would flash up. So you wouldn't miss that important thing that you were waiting for, but you wouldn't have to have your phone present. It's so funny, all this tech that's being developed to help us deal with tech. It, do you know what? This was about three years ago, I think. And wearable tech's an interesting one because I, I don't really think it's taken off for most people yet. In the extract of Peter Crouch's second book that I read uh, on oh, last yeah. week's episode... He said, the, for anyone who didn't listen, his book was extracted in the Sunday Times. In that extract, it said that they, uh, him and his footballer mates often will go out for dinner and they have a rule that they all have to put their phones in the middle of the table. And if anyone, the first person to pick up their phone from the table has to pay for the whole bill. I think that's really good. And I still a, don't think you should... I just yeah. think you shouldn't see your phones at all. I feel like I fub you quite a lot because I'm just so easily distractible. When you're talking to me, if I pick up my phone, I'm like Zadie with one of her Lego bricks. My parents, funny enough, do it a lot. <laughs> None of our siblings would pick up... would even bring our phone to the table when we're having, like, a family meal or pick up. Yeah. Both my mum and my dad will peer at their phone if something comes through. They'll really? watch videos... <laughs> My dad has a duck quacking as his duck alert, as his, as his text alert. <laughs> Are there any that you think they've missed this year, doll? Well, I was going to say imposter syndrome, hmm. but I read a report this morning, actually, that said that was put into last year's revision, which I'd forgotten, along with binge watch. Okay. And it's funny how so many of these do feel preemptive, because I think imposter syndrome is something that has only really been understood in mass mainstream conversation this year. But then something... So that was prescient. But then something like chillax, it feels like it's popped up 10 years after my dad stopped saying it. Well, this is why I think it must have come back, because I'd actually say that in general, the OED is moving to a place where it's actually uh, quite preemptive now. Yeah. Like having nomophobia in there that most people wouldn't have heard about omni shambles unless mm. you've watched the thick of it you wouldn't have so either something's gone rogue mm. with chillax mm. or we're just waiting to have it confirmed by someone that it has come back mm. i'm going to end this segment on a spot of trivia for you tell what me what is the longest non-technical because the science ones go on forever word in the oed this is one that i think my dad taught me age 10 but that even i 
have not managed to ever shoehorn into either my writing or a conversation because even for me it's too strangling. Is it a proper noun? No. I was going to say that Welsh village that was in the news that was, that was you know, 26 letters long or something. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, what's well, the longest place name apparently in the world at 58 characters and I'm not even going to begin to try and pronounce that. <laughs> so maybe this word is no longer the longest, but leaving aside place names, flocky knocky near hippilification. <laughs> what does that mean? It's a descriptive word for something worthless or unimportant. <laughs> wow. But you can't possibly ever use that. That's a good word. I've never even heard of it. It's the kind of word that uh, twatty people try to teach to a toddler because it will be fun. <laughs> and I know that you're now going to go and try and teach that to a toddler. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to the Hilo. Thank you everyone who has come to the Hilo Experience Tour. And we look forward to seeing more of you at Manchester next week and Glasgow the week after that. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.